I can see from the uh, sparse number today that uh, a number of delegates have already heard me speak. (laughs) I've got about half an hour, and uh, I want to make the best use of it. So I'd like us to begin by reading from the Scripture. Some of you might have your Bibles. If not, listen as I read one verse from Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. I'll be reading verse 10. Because of the time, I'm going to assume that you uh, know essentially the context of Daniel chapter 10, the story of uh, Daniel thrown into the lion's den. Daniel chapter 6 verse 10, listen please to the inspired and infallible word of God. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. When I was in Sunday school, about 50 years ago, half a century, that sounds longer than 50 years, (laughs) half a century ago, we would sing a song. I'm not sure if it was sung here in the UK, but I suspect some of you here do know it. The first verse went like this, Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. I'm going to speak uh, today in this devotional time. Dare to be a Daniel at prayer. You know, Daniel's one of the great exemplary characters in the entire Bible. Now, all of us, of course, are sinners and have fallen short of God's glory. But interestingly, that's not the fact that the Bible highlights in talking about Daniel. In fact, if you read about Daniel, you'll not see that the Word of God ever points out any sin in his life. Now, he acknowledged his sin, but the Bible doesn't highlight that. The Bible tells us about Daniel apparently to show us how a righteous man stands and lives in an evil culture and evil circumstances. That's the purpose of Daniel. It reveals how God's sovereignty using one godly man works out in the life of a pagan culture. You're probably aware that Daniel was carried away with thousands of other Jewish Jewish youth, and not just youth, to Babylon, modern Iran, and possibly part of Iraq, in Judah's captivity. And he and others were specifically selected to be the young elite in the Babylonian kingdom. And through a remarkable chain, a remarkable chain of providential circumstances, he ended up as virtually the assistant to the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And he was one of three governors, we would say, directly under the king's authority. There's a reason I'd like to highlight Daniel's prayer life today, and I think it's very germane. If there's one practice of the Christian life that is most neglected today, it is, in my view, prayer. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to me because I'm going to level some judgments, not specifically at you, but at the church at large, and therefore at me. 
because I am a part of that. We don't live in a praying age. We really don't. The 19th century here in England and the U.S. was a praying age. And there were great missionary exploits and great victories because it was a praying age. We don't live in a time in which churches and Christian children and college students spend much time in prayer. When, when a problem arises, the first thing that is said is, let's get down on our knees and pray. When is the last time anybody said that? Or rather, what can we strategize? Is there anything wrong with strategy? No. After you've prayed. There's almost, I must say, almost no preaching and teaching on prayer, relatively speaking. Prayer is short, it is weak, and it is perfunctory. Now, I've come to believe that this neglect of prayer is nothing less than diabolical. Do you realize Satan has a very vested interest in cooling the ardor of Christian's prayer? He has a vested interest in keeping you from praying. He knows that prayer is God's chosen way of accomplishing much of his massive work in the earth. And Satan will do virtually anything to keep God's people from spending time in prayer. Because even if you and I don't know the power of prayer, Satan does know the power of prayer. He does. Obviously, in our time, Satan has been a rousing success at his prayerlessness tactic. He wouldn't be a rousing success if we lived and prayed more like Daniel. I'm going to say three things about Daniel. They're very simple. Brief, but I pray and I hope very powerful. First, I would urge you to dare to be a Daniel in principled, principled prayer. You know the story. Daniel's political colleagues called satraps were very envious of him. They wanted to bring him down from his high perch. They didn't like hierarchy. Now, interestingly, they couldn't They could find nothing in his work habits, nothing in his work habits by which to accuse him. In other words, Daniel did his job, and he did his job very well and faithfully. By the way, that too is an example for us. That's not my main point today, but it is a point. Christians of all people should be the most diligent and faithful in their work. Of all people. What a smear on the name of Jesus Christ when professed Christians have such shoddy work habits. That's a smear on Jesus Christ. That wasn't Daniel. He wasn't merely wise, wasn't merely loyal. He was diligent, and he was provident. So these satraps were forced to bring down Daniel in one way and one way alone. They could find only one way. They had to create a scenario in which his godly principles would conflict with his political status. Daniel, you see, had a reputation for godliness, do you have a reputation for godliness? Well, I don't know. I don't, wouldn't want people to consider me a Pharisee. And so I sort of go around with stoop-shouldered, and I don't want anybody to think too highly of me. Well, it's good to have a reputation for being a godly person. You know godliness is a good thing. Holiness is a good thing. Righteousness is a good thing. We need more of that today. 
We read in chapter 6, verse 5, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Question. Could unbelievers say that about you and me? Or could they compile a very long list of valid complaints about our faithlessness and laziness and lust and other things? Or would they say, we can't come up with anything. We can't come up with anything. So we're going to have to find something in connection with the law of God to which this person's committed to. Oh, what a revival today we need of the law of God. We live in a profoundly antinomian time. The law of God is neglected, it is perverted, it is belittled, it is slandered, and that's just in the church. Because the law isn't a means of our justification, and it is not, many Christians throw it completely out the window. I'd like to ask them and you to slowly read Psalm 119 sometime. Slowly. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. And then consider whether you think yourself more spiritual than David. The law of God is a reflection of God's holy character. And we're called to be holy. To attack the law of God, therefore, is to attack the holiness of God. To attack the law of God is to attack the nature of God. Therefore, to attack the law of God is to attack God. The Holy Spirit's given to us so that we can obey the law of God, Romans chapter 8 says. Therefore, and I say it boldly, to be antinomian is to be anti-Christian. To be antinomian is to be anti-Christian. One command of the law of God is to pray. Daniel's pagan colleagues knew that this man, therefore, because he obeyed the law of God, was a man of prayer. He was a man of principled prayer. In other words, he formed the habits of prayer. That's what that verse means that we read, his, as his custom was. Now, I'm making a couple of perhaps unique points today, so listen carefully. We live in a time drenched in the romanticist notion that spontaneity is king. In the church, this means that godly habits are, and customs are considered subspiritual, while sort of spontaneous, carefree, spirit-led actions are the ones that really please God. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible doesn't say that Daniel thought, well, you know, I I don't really need to pray today because I don't feel a lot of the Spirit. But the next day got up, oh, I feel a great need to pray, so I'm going to pray today. He said he had a custom of praying the same way, the same time, in the same way every day. And he was a godly man. I urge you to spend time in prayer Every day, if possible, unless providentially hindered, the same time and in the same way. Godly habits and customs aren't somehow less spiritual than godly spontaneity. Which a lot of times is just laziness. Oh, I just want to be carefree and spontaneous. What you really mean is you want to be undisciplined. That's basically what it means. Make a prayer list. Nothing whatsoever wrong with a prayer list. I have so many things to pray for and I'm so needy. I can't remember everything. If you could remember everything without writing a list, you aren't praying enough about, about enough things. My list is so long, I have to write things down so that I can remember. From a youth, Daniel had learned to pray. It was his custom. 
will never be people of prayer until prayer becomes a custom and a habit. Daniel then refused to compromise his holy custom of prayer. By the way, principles don't admit of compromise. Preferences can be compromised. Principles can be. Daniel, of course, heard of Darius's foolish decree. For 30 days, no prayers could be made to any person or God except the king. And the king loved Daniel, but Daniel's conniving colleagues persuaded the king, tragically. Now, notice what Daniel didn't say. He didn't say, well, prayer is between me and God, so I can pray silently in my heart so that no one will see. And that way I won't get into trouble. Because one doesn't need to pray out loud in order to pray. And of course, technically that's true. But Daniel didn't say that. You know why? Because he was a man of conviction. He was a man of principle. And he wasn't going to change his godly customs simply because it became against the law. I love, some of the old timers were inclined to say, Daniel's was a religion with windows. You ever notice what it says there? Daniel didn't close all the windows. I don't want anyone peeking in. I mean, I can pray just as well with the windows closed. He didn't say that. He opened the windows and prayed just like always. Now, you know, I must say it's astounding how timid and embarrassed Christians are about prayer. And they're not even facing a den of lions. Just a den of disapproving secularists. When they're eating in a restaurant, they're too timid to pray in a normal tone of voice. Too embarrassed to stop with a sinner or a friend on the sidewalk or the tube and pray. You see, I suspect they're actually ashamed of Jesus Christ. I suspect we don't want to be thought of as too religious. But we are religious. We're the people of God. And we rely on God in prayer. And the more that an unbelieving culture knows this, the better. We don't pray to be seen of men, of course, like the New Testament Pharisees. But we also don't hide to avoid being seen of men. So dare to be a Daniel in principled prayer. Second, dare to be a Daniel in petitionary prayer. Chapter 9, we didn't read this, verses 1 through 19 consists almost entirely of Daniel's prayer for all the people of Israel. And they were suffering so pitifully, not him specifically, but many of them in Babylon. And of course they deserved God's judgment, but he appeals to God to relieve his people. Listen to what he says in chapter 9, verse 17. I'll just read it for you. This is part of his prayer. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. The sanctuary being the people, the people of God. God invites us to come boldly in the name of Jesus Christ for help, the book of Hebrews tells us. Now note this, God delights to do good things for his children. Now one of the great errors of false piety in prayer is the notion that it's self-centered. It's somehow self-centered to cry out to God to help us and to give us good things. You know, some people are more pious than God. That idea is both perverse and counterproductive. When we pray and when God answers our prayer, when we pray and when God answers our prayer, here's what he's doing besides helping us as his people. First, God increases our faith and the faith of those people around us. 
You ever think about that? Oh, an answered prayer. That increases my faith to pray for more. And those who know of the answered prayer, that also increases their faith. And that's not self-centered at all. That's God-centered. And then we see what God does in answer to prayer, and that increases the confidence that he will do even more for us. And his greatness in the earth blazes everywhere. God displays his own glory in the earth by acting on behalf of his people. Note what happened. That happened right in this passage. After Daniel was delivered from the den of the lions, Darius was overjoyed, and he said, Oh, that's really cool, and he sat down. No, what did Darius do? He issued a proclamation, recognizing the great sovereign God. What an amazing God this is. This man was thrown to lions, but his God delivered him. Do you see how God got the glory? Because of answered prayer. Prayer makes a, Answered prayer makes a deep impression, not just on Christians, but also on non-believers. So I ask you, do you desire to glorify God? I think everybody here that is a believer would at least acknowledge, yes, I want to glorify God. Answered prayers glorify God. So, well, I don't know. Unanswered prayers glorify God. In the Bible, it's mostly answered prayers that glorify God. God tells us in James 4 that we don't have because we don't. See, Andrew, I just like that's just not theologically profound enough for me. <laughs> but it's true. You have problems and difficulties in your life right now? Did you already pray about it? You say, well, not really. Well, you don't have because you don't ask. If you need money for college or grad school, ask. If you desire a godly husband or wife, ask. If you need physical healing, ask. Ask. If you want your parents, your brother, sister, relatives to trust in Jesus Christ, ask. If you're having uh, trouble with a problem with a friend or friendship, cry out to God. If you need a seat on the train that's fully booked, you've got to get on that train, ask. Ask. Now, obviously, this truth implies that we should be praying all the time. Both customary prayer and prayer several times during the uh, several times during the day, and then scores or hundreds of short prayers throughout the entire day. I try whenever I meet somebody or when I'm talking to one of you, I'll just Lord, please give me something to say. It might be just five words I pray. That's constant reliance on God. Constant. You know, I sometimes hear Christians imply or even state that God's committed to consistently testing and trying and bruising and hurting his children for his own glory. I've just heard that and I'm sick and tired of hearing that. That's a slander and a blasphemy. Jesus tells us that God is our father. And that if we as faith, as sinful fathers, if we love to do good things for our children, how much more does our heavenly father long to do good things for those his children who ask him? I have a question for you. Are you a better father than God? Or parent than God? Do you wish to harm and bruise and test your children? Then why in the world do you think God would want to do that? And he does allow Satan to tempt us and hurl hardships in our way and put us into situations so that we'll cry out to him. But that's Satan's work. That's not God's. And God allows him to do that in his providence. In all things, God is working for good to those of us who love him. 
Daniel knew not only that God is a righteous God, he knew that because God's a righteous God, he righteously loves and cares for his children. And he wants to answer prayer. So I urge you this morning, pray about everything. And by everything, I mean everything. Church and college and health and friends and family and money and fatigue and parking spaces and animals and allergies and phobias and gardens and grass and airplanes. And if you say these things are trivial, what you're really saying is God is not interested in the details of life. That's what you're really saying. But the one who knows every sparrow that falls and counts every hair on our heads cares deeply for every aspect of our lives. Therefore, pray about everything and always, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. Finally, dare to be a Daniel in persevering prayer. I guess I was a good preacher today. I have three Ps. In chapter 10, we meet Daniel... uh, It's much later in the account, chronologically, and also in Daniel's life. He's an old man in Daniel 10. He's still praying. Isn't that wonderful? As a young man, he was praying, praying, and as an old man, he was still praying. He's on his face before God. We read there for 21 days, he'd been crying out for God to restore his people to Jerusalem to finally rebuild the temple. He's there on the banks of the Tigris River and an angel in splendor and shining attire coming so blazing in glory that the other Jews accompanying Daniel scampered away in fear. The angel meets him. And the angel made a remarkable statement to Daniel. Remarkable statement. He wanted to assure Daniel that from the very first day that Daniel had begun fasting and praying, the very first day God had heard him, and God had dispatched this angel with the response and with the message. However, the scripture says the angel had been impeded by the, this mysterious figure, the prince of Persia, on the way to bring the message. Now, there's little doubt about the meaning of this prince of Persia. It's a fallen angel, a demon to whom Satan had given jurisdiction over the Persian Empire. By the way, we can learn from this that Satan has a great interest in political rulers. And these demonic beings influence modern politicians for evil. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 6, by the way. He speaks about the principalities and powers influencing mostly, not exclusively, but mostly political leaders, the great powers of the time, stimulating behind the scenes. For 21 days, Daniel had persevered in prayer. By the way, and I want to make this point very emphatically, he didn't pray this falsely pious prayer that so many Christians do today. Well, I prayed about something for two long days. And God didn't answer it, therefore it must not be in the will of God. Do that. What a pious and totally distorted and evil response. I prayed about it a day or two, and therefore it must not be in the will of God. Listen carefully. It is not our responsibility to discover the will of God beyond the word of God. Yes, that's one you can write down. It's not our responsibility to discover the will of God beyond the word of God. God's will for us to discover while we're on earth is set forth in his word. This is the prescriptive will of God. Now, he does have a decretal will. Some people would call it his secret will. 
But see, it's known as secret for a reason. We don't know what it is. Never pray in terms of God's decretal will. Pray always in terms of his prescriptive will. Daniel was a persevering prayer warrior and God answered him because he persevered. God relishes persevering prayer. He relishes that. Ask, Jesus says, and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And to those who say, well, I've tried it before for three days and it didn't happen and therefore it wasn't in the will of God. Well, let's just read the Bible and why don't we trust what the Bible says rather than our experience. God loves it when we persevere in prayer. He loves when we come to him. Oh, the cases of Jesus, those who came after him for healing, for example. And on the first or second time asked and Jesus ignored them. And they kept on crying. And he says, oh, woman, the woman, great is your faith. The one who touched the hem of his garment. Great is your faith. My, he loves that. From Daniel, we know that many times our prayers aren't answered immediately because of the great spiritual warfare in the heavens, just literally above us. That happens. So that's just kind of a little freaky for me, Andrew. Well, maybe freaky, but that's what the Bible says. There's great spiritual battle all the time, great spiritual warfare going on, and we are a part of the warfare. We're a part of the visible warfare, but there's also the invisible warfare, invisible to us, obviously not to God. Therefore, if you're praying, and you're praying for a long, long time, and your prayers haven't been answered, don't stop praying. Don't assume your prayer isn't in God's will. The Bible even indicates God is willing to change his stated purposes. Oh, that's very clear in the Bible. I'm not talking about his, quote, decretal will. He says, I have determined to do this. I'm going to do this. And people cry out to God, Moses, for example. And what does God do? Okay, okay. You've persuaded me, God says. Isn't that wonderful? In fact, it's almost amusing sometimes. He says something one time. He says, I'm going to do this. And he says, don't speak to me again about this. You know why God said that? Because God knows in his heart he's willing to be dissuaded and persuaded by those who cry out to him. And therefore God said, don't speak to me about it again, Moses. Don't speak to me about it again because I know if people cry out for mercy, I'll often answer because I'm a merciful God. Only rarely in the Bible does God reveal that the prayer of a godly person is not in his will. Only rarely. In the vast majority of cases, God answers the prayer of his righteous people because righteous people pray righteous prayers. This, by the way, distinguishes biblical prayer from the heretical health and wealth gospel and the prosperity gospel. I'm not preaching those today. You see, God isn't interested in answering the prayers of worldly narcissists. That's not what's in view in the Bible at all. But he delights to answer the prayer of his righteous people who wish only to please him for his glory. I'm going to conclude with this. We're at a Worldview Conference. And a very good one, by the way. And I want to state as emphatically as possible. Persevering prayer is an indispensable component of the Christian worldview. It's the prayer worldview. Ideas have consequences, but ideas alone 
won't change anything. We must have ideas that are fired with the power of the Holy Spirit in response to the prayers of God's people. To embrace the Christian worldview is to embrace the prayer worldview. If there's going to be a great revival and reformation in England and America, it won't arrive only as a result of the power of ideas. It won't. They're necessary, but they're not sufficient. These ideas must be backed up by principled, petitionary, and persevering prayer. I want to make a final point. I don't believe that Dr. Boot or Andrea will be offended if at free time, this evening or whenever, a few of you get together and say, let's go have a prayer meeting. I think that's probably true. You, you wouldn't be deeply offended by that, I don't think. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Some of you young ladies, get, young men, get together and say, let's cry out to God to answer our prayer, send a great revival, to send a great reformation, and start it here with us. In fact, I'd like to do that right now. Let's bow our heads. I think I'm going to ask my dear friend, Jeff Entrella. Jeff, will you please pray that God begins a great reformation? Here. Our great God and Father, we come before you humble, but encouraged by hearing the truth of your word.